Good morning, good afternoon, Avita Zane. Welcome to From Bricktown. Dad, how you doing? Fine, doing fine. Listen, we're looking forward to an exciting, exciting show today. What's on your mind? Oh, I voted yesterday. I stood online for about about a half an hour or so and voted. And it was very interesting because I never saw a line outside in Laurenburg. I ever saw a line outside the voting area. But there was a line there, and I stood online, you know, with my wife. And we uh, went through and voted, and they sanitized us and gave us a pen that we could keep. And it was a really different experience. But I voted yesterday. As most Americans have begun to vote, I think it's like 40 million have already voted in early voting and were voting already. Uh, it'll be a massive, you know, it'll be almost 200 million people have voted by the end of this in two weeks. Okay. And, and why did you feel that you needed to vote so early? Well, you know, it's the key thing is I didn't want to wait till the last minute because then you're done the lines are getting to be really low in here. Watching around the country, you know, people are waiting, you know, 7, 8, 10, 12 hours voting. I wasn't going to wait online that long. I was, my lady wouldn't, wouldn't take it that long. But still... You know, we waited about about a half an hour to forty minutes. Uh, and it, but it was you know, kind of friendly lines. They no, it was different. There's a mixture of people there, old, young, black, white. You know, it was you know rich, poor, a little bit of every everything was there. But it was the bowling place was was set up very differently than we've ever seen it. But we did wait and we did do our thing and it kind of worked out. And now's the time to do it. I tell everybody out there, vote. This is your time to influence the government. Make sure you vote. Don't let anybody take it away from you. Don't let the Proud Boys or any of the other fools do it. You know, take it. You know, threaten you. You need to go ahead and vote. And you're in a Republican county, so your vote definitely is a different. Well, it's thing. actually it, it depends. It's probably a 50-50 county because remember we had a black sheriff for a long time, and he was he was elected by Democrats. He got, he got caught up in some crazy shit at the end, that's why he lost his, lost his seat, but it's really a 50-50, kind of, and then you look at the county commissioners, which is another level of government, and they're, you know, they're, most of them are Democrats. So you feel that the, the voting was safe, and you didn't feel that you were intimidating in the process? Oh, no, not at all, there wasn't anybody poll watching either, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was, it was none of that. I've been I've been involved in voting for a long, long time. Uh, they well, separated. Usually, at, at voting places, there's a series of I want to say hangers-on who are telling voters who to vote for if they don't know. Well, they separated those people by a, a like a like a yard to themselves, so that they didn't come anywhere near you. And yeah, they would shout across the, like a, like a fenced area about somebody like when this guy named Bo Frizzell who was running for county commissioner and they said you know Bo and I said yeah I know Bo that's why I ain't voting for him <laughs> oh damn what's wrong with Bo uh, I know him he's one of my neighbors actually lives on the street here when I was really sick about a year ago he came by my house uh, late, late, late one one evening, and said, and told my wife, and said, "Is he dead?" Never forgot that. 
when I was was really not doing very well, and you know, I never forgot that. And he came back a couple of days later. I did speak to him, and I was not impressed. I'd never met the guy before, but he's got you know inherited wealth, and he's he's kind of an instructor in the construction in, in industry, I think. And, you know, he's always got big machines, so I think that's what he does. But you know, I don't know him other than those two times meeting him. But the two times I met him was underwhelming. <laughs> oh. I think he'd be a disastrous county commissioner. He'd send us back 30 years. In fact, he, he reminds me of this stereotypical Republican in the South. You know, racist. Uh, I really don't know that he is. I'll rephrase that. But he is, he is the reminds me of the stereotype stereotype of a southern republican if you said one I'd think of Bo Frizzell and that's more and more I guess airtime time that he deserves <laughs> okay alright so I guess you voted a democratic ticket is what it sounds like oh no question democrats have to seize the government back from this idiot and, and no. by, by listening online that seems to be the overall trend that got out there even though the, the line was mostly older white folks basically and uh, but the bottom line of that was it was a very peaceful line there was no, no animosity with anybody but I never I don't remember ever seeing that many elderly people voting and at 65 these people were older than I was by and large was, was there a lot of red hats out there I didn't see a single one. What? I didn't see a single redhead. Oh, that's interesting. I, mean, I, I really don't have any idea how people voted because it's, they didn't have any, any labels or cards or anything else. And nobody asked me, and I didn't ask anybody else. Me, me and Sharon just stood online. They separated by, by a couple feet, so it was some separation. We each of all of us had our mask on, so that was to keep the you know the virus down, C19 down. And they sanitized every voting place. And I must admit, it was a a very safe kind of place. And the poll workers were actually, in this case, I'm thinking about it. I really didn't notice it yesterday, but the poll workers were either blacks or Indians. Huh. And that was different than the times I voted. I voted in the primary earlier this year, and it wasn't that way. Were they were they younger, middle-aged? Older. Older? Mostly older. And some were mid The two of them, the Indian lady and the other lady, black lady, was there helping out with what was going on, going on and helping with the crowd, which really wasn't the crowd, but the helping with that in the lines. They were middle-aged, you know, Indian and black black ladies. Two ladies that were checking you out were two black ladies, older. But the crowd, I would say, to yesterday was probably mostly white, older people. And I waited to Tuesday because I wanted to beat the crowd. That's why I was surprised when I got there, because there's never a line there. There was actually a line there. Some other topics you wanted me to remind you to talk about today was you as a football coach. The talent. Oh yeah, that was in my 
I have to, I have to think back on that because it's really before you were born. But anyway, I was a football coach, and my brother played on the team, and my nephew, uh, Larry, played on the team, and uh, it was, uh, you know, a, a team that was, we played in, in New York City in Queens, and we were basically an all-black team, well, not really all-black, about half-black, two-thirds black, and we played in a league that was all-white in Queens, and we went from just a ragtag kind of, kind of a team to play for the championship of the league mm. against against one of the teams that you know finally beat us. They had you know played for a, a decade or more, generations of kids. And I was we were just a ragtag. We put kids together, and, and we we were learning. Me and my buddy Linwood Brooks, we were coaching them, and we were doing it by reading books. We had we didn't we had played ourselves, but you know ragtag kind of leagues in New York City. But that was about it. But uh, we had a guy that was a, part, a, a white bartender named Sam Weak, and uh, but he was involved with the mafia. Actually, I kind of knew that. But he, he he got the people in the bar to sponsor the team and buy the uniforms and and everything else. And it was a I'd say a seventy thirty black white kind of team. And me and Brooks were the ones that ran the team. Two black guys, kids. Basically, we were we were in our our twenties. And uh, it was it was a fun experience. We did it for about two years. Then later on, at some point, I read in the newspaper. So it was very kind of odd how I saw this newspaper. It was in the Daily News. And I hadn't read it, and it was I had to see it a couple of days later. I picked it up, and Sam had had and he was kind of tied with the mafia. He was a bartender there, and somebody had taken him into the bathroom and shot him dead. And. Uh, it was presumed that it was he had done something bad, and Mafia just repaid him for that. Mm. That's not. And it was terrible because he was he was just a wonderful guy. His wife was a wonderful guy. His kids, he had a, a little boy, and some of the neighbors played on that team, and it was just a wonderful kind of you know biracial experience. Uh, and the kids were you know the first experience they ever had playing football. And in the leagues, in New York City, really at that time, football was something that kids didn't play. We'd like to have played it, but they were like leagues and stuff like that. They had high school teams, but below that, people didn't play. These these kids were, oh, I'd say, in their teens, basically, early teens. And uh, we were the, we played in St. Albans and Cambria Arts and Laurel Hill, uh, Laurelton, and uh, in Queens. We just played around Queens, and we, we got around, and parents were involved, and it was really, a, looking back on it, it was a fun experience, but we were all the challengers, because we challenged everybody. That was what Sam said. You know, as as people listen internationally in other countries, and they're thinking, how did this black man accomplish this? What, what do you want to say? Well, I've been blessed, frankly and have been able to do and experience a lot of different things with a lot of different kinds of people. So I really don't have any prejudices against who you are. I always accept you as who you are. And not what you look like, but who you are. And I think that's the way we all have to look at everybody. And in looking at my time frame of life, I remember, I think I may have said something about my college roommate, Ralph, Rich Lager, and you know, the bottom line was, you know, he was a wonderful guy. 
it's wonderful room, and I can't think of a bad thing I can say about him. You know, this is 50 years later. We never argued about anything. And he came from the same, we came from the same borough, but remember, Queens had three million people. You know, Queens County was bigger than many states. So given that, you know, it's, you know, we were from different backgrounds, and it worked out well. And Rich is now in California doing doing fairly well, I think, but he's getting up at age like I am. He, he told me he, in one of his emails he stopped teaching now, and that's, it's like I stopped teaching. Well, you te- you're teaching on your podcast, man. I know, and I enjoy it. That's why I do it every weekend, every, and it's getting me to think about it during the week, and as I, I'm passing on what I think of things on to you about that. That's why I... One of the things I thought about this night is we, if we have people in other parts of the world listening to this, one of the things that probably they aren't, uh, they aren't really cognizant of or don't know is how this government we, we live in is organized. Now, I was a mayor of a town or a city, and mayors or, and city councilmen are the lowest form of, of elected officials, and our town was about 15,000 people town next to Chapel Hill, which joined us, was about 80,000 people. And we were elected by our local citizens to be in those positions of either being a city councilman or, in our case, it was an alderman or a mayor. Then you had above us, with the only unit of the government that was above us was a county government. Our county was probably a real quarter million people. I'm on it. And, uh, I was about, about a quarter million people, and uh, they, had, they had county commissioners. And their job was kind of different than ours because the laws in North Carolina, the laws that set up cities and the laws that set up counties were two different sets of laws. They do different things. County commissioners are actually state officials. They're elected during the years of the state government. When the state government gets elected by the, you know, either the governor or the lieutenant governor or the other offices we have in state government. And North Carolina at that time was about 4 million people. Now it's about 8. So all these kinds of things, you know, a, a government that's different than other parts of the world, and they really are, probably don't understand how we, how we do it. I remember when I went to England three years ago and talking to we had a local butcher there, which I got to be friends with, and he was just, he wanted to come and visit and everything else. But what he never realized, and I didn't realize until I got over there, was all of England could fit in the state of North Carolina by itself. North Carolina, from, from Murphy to Manio, is a thousand miles. Very few people in North Carolina have been from one end to the other. I've been to the, the western end, but I've never been over all the way over to the Outer Banks, except for one little, little piece of it. So I've never been to Murphy, but I've been to Manio. From there, you actually go into Georgia, believe it or not. People aren't aware, but Georgia actually touches on North Carolina and then into Tennessee. I did, I did that, that tour one time, and it was really fascinating. It was a whole different part of the country. So I can say all that to say that it's been a, an interesting journey I've went through in my, my 75 years. Now, how did you overcome the mental doubt that says you can't run and win office? Well, I always wanted to do that. So I never thought I had any doubt. I just did it. And when my friend Doug Sherrill, who I went to, went to playing school with at Chapel Hill, said to me, we have this group called the Carver Coalition, and 
you live in Carver and you talked about that, why don't you come to a meeting? And I went to the meeting and said, yeah, I'll run. So me and Braxton Fouché and one, two, and Nancy White, we decided to run because we didn't like the town government at the time. And we, we, and we had college students to vote for us, but we got elected. So we had these three or four people, four people, that were running the town government and didn't know anything about it. Didn't know how to do it, and we just did it. Okay, so you run, you win, and then you run again. Is there any doubt that you're going to win the second time? I always had doubt whether I'd win, but I always thought I could win. And, and these are things, if you feel that you can, you can do a hard job good and you can help your fellow man do it. It really doesn't matter if you win or lose. But getting in the race is what's important. And that's what I did. I got in the race, did a good job, I thought. And... Uh, got to meet a lot of different kinds of people, people that were different to me, and they voted for me. What, what type of election event did you do to recruit votes? I didn't hear what you just said. What type of events did you do to recruit votes? Oh, we had we had forums. I'm not me and me and Bobby. Bobby at that time was just a little kid. He was about eight or nine. He, he'd be on. He was on his little tricycle. We'd go to diverse neighborhoods on weekends when people would be in. And we'd knock on doors and I'd tell them to vote for me. Then the Carborough Community Coalition had a group of their people, like Yuppies primarily, and I was on their ticket. So we they, they voted for me. Now, knocking on doors as a black man in the South, is, is that the safest thing to do? Well, I really knocked on doors in black neighborhoods primarily, frankly, because black people were not voting at that time. Still, on, That's still one of the problems. One of the more heartening things I see is I look at these voting lines is the number of people of color who are actually out there voting. So this is going to be the most biracial, triracial, inclusive election we've ever had as a country. People are, are looking at what's going on in the government and say, this is not the way a government's supposed to be running. And I agree with them on that. I look at the times when I was at Capitol Hill, and I, I took for 10 years in Alabama when I was at, 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 at faculty at Auburn University, for 10 years, I took a group of up, upcoming 4-Hers to Washington, and we met with all these leaders, basically, the congressional leaders and our delegations and stuff. And I took these kids all over, all over, you know, Washington, D.C. and Maryland. We took them to the Inner Harbor and various places. We took them different places, took them to different restaurants, and, and got them to see a lot of different things. Remember, Baltimore was, was the start of a lot of our... our American Revolution. The Star Spangled Banner was written in Baltimore Harbor by Francis Scott, Scott Key. And we, we I, I wanted to sign a couple, two years or so of that doing that, because we did it for about 10 years. Two years of that, we took the kids on a boat ride. And the kids would start singing Star Spangled Banner. I didn't ask them to, they just did it. Because the guy was talking like this, this was Francis Scott Key was on that boat when, when, he, was, when, he, when he was writing the Star Spangled Banner. And kids just start singing it. So the kids were, and I think young people are patriotic if you allow them to be. And I think this election will be all part of this. I guess the interesting thing is yesterday, all the people I saw yesterday were older. And I think that's one of the reasons they voted, you know, yesterday, because there was no younger people there at all. Uh, it was a biracial crew by, by and large, but it was, they were mostly uh, older people like myself. Mm -hmm. So you didn't have any 
Trump style rallies when you were running? Well, I guess we did. Yeah, we did. Co- coalition kind of did, but there were no one near as big as that. So, I mean, we, we did a lot of different things, but we were just organizers, community organizers, more versus anything else. And we would pass out stuff. Like when we wanted word to get to the college student, when this member, the vast majority of residents of my town, Garborough, were college students, because a lot of our apartments. And even though we we lived in Carver, Chapel Hill was right next door, the adjoining towns. A good portion of the students who were at that time who went to, to Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina, lived in Carver. So we would pass out stuff. We'd pass out three or four thousand things, go door to door and give it to them. And the Carver Community Coalition did a wonderful job of that. It was my first time of getting involved with organized political organizing. And they were good. I later got involved with a couple of races, like people running for higher offices. I was on a lot, number of campaign campaigns doing that for statewide offices. And looking back on it, they were like the people in Raleigh were much more organized than we were. But it, you learned a lot, and it was, you learned how you could do it, how you couldn't do it. Uh, but. One of the things is our country is now more because of the emphasis on political television. People know more about what's going on than we ever did. And that's that's a good revolution. You have a much more uh, educated electorate out here now. We know what's going on. We see it. it is, the, is the electorate more educated? Because I feel like it's a bifurcated no, uh, bias education. No, it's actually it's more educated because you have an op- you have a lot of options. Because of uh, integration, you're getting a lot of different people in every channel. And it doesn't even Foxes, which is mostly a Trump channel, even they are better at getting lots of inclusion people in, getting different kinds of people from different places, getting diversity in. And diversity of opinion is good, whoever you are. Just because you don't look the way I look doesn't mean that you're bad. It means that you're different. You've been brought up differently, whatever. And li- living in a you know biracial household, I think we get along pretty well. I think Tommy's wonderful. I think Bobby's he's getting there. I think you're wonderful. So given that, you know, it's it's one of the things that you learn and you do. And working with people, we're all people at the end of all of this. That's who we are. And we got to think that way. Well, I just give Tommy and Sharon and Bobby props for being able to live with you. Uh, you, you well, it's, it's, it's different. It's fun. And, uh, we, you, have, you have different personalities, of course, but it's just one unit, and it's, it works well together. No, I tell my wife that all the time. I don't know how she lives with me. It's difficult. Humans are just difficult. I uh, agree with that. <laughs> I don't know how she lives with you either. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. No, I, I'm telling you the truth. <laughs> but um, listen, Dad, I love you. I've learned a lot from you over the years. And I just appreciate the thinking that you continue to do and uh, continue to contribute to our society. Well, this, this, this has been a, these, these meetings uh, has been an interesting part of my life. It's gotten me to think and chronicle where I've been and where I'm going. And I'm still going, which we're now in 
and missed the planning for this big yurt we're trying to build, this 30-foot yurt we're building. Wow. And most of the stuff is coming in. we still got to get a contractor to build it, the deck, but we're, we're almost there. Tommy found some guy we're going to look at. We got a couple of ads in some of the local papers, so we'll get a contractor up. Uh, I read a, a, something from Pacific Works and talked to a lady out west who's got about 10 yurts. And it's not a campground, but it's like a, a vacation kind of place. And when I talked to her about it, she said, I'll come and help you put it up. Because they're putting up like four yurts right now. I think they're 20s, but if you can put up one, you can put up any of them, basically. She said, uh, I'm not Tommy's asking, I've got it down. But, uh, I spoke to her yesterday, and she called me right back and said, uh, yeah, we'll come on out there. She's in she's Bryson City, so she's about four hours away from here. And she, and she was enthusiastic about it. And, but she's... I'm, Tommy's talking to me, what? Yeah, I think that's it, Tom. Bryson City, yes. We're doing, we're doing a radio show then. I know, but Tommy's sitting next to me, so... I can't say bad things about him. <laughs> <laughs> well... I do think the yurt is going to be now for for the people who are listeners who don't know what a yurt is. Help us understand what a thirty foot yurt is. Well, the key thing is this: when you were in the fourth grade, they talked about various things in history. They talked about a guy named Genghis Khan, who led the Mongols to conquer half of the known world at that time. They traveled in yurts, which is a round tent-like structure which they put on wheels. They would bring the whole family in when, they, when, they, when they would travel. So the whole crew, they would you know, get together. They'd conquer a city. It didn't matter if it was walled or not. But remember, the Great Wall of China, which I stood upon, a massive achievement. But the Great Wall of China was built to stop the Mongols. Because they, they conquered almost, and eventually they, they, they actually conquered China also. And that's where Mongolia is now. But basically, they were able to conquer half the world. And they were stopped, I think, in Prague. It was where they were stopped in conquering all of Europe. But, you know, they, they traveled in yurts. It's a round tent-like structure. And, like, we have one now that's a 20-foot in diameter yurt. It's a circle. And, uh, basically, uh, the one we're building is a 30-foot. And a 30-foot yurt may not seem like it's very big, but it can seat 100 people. And we're building it to have a place to have a convention center, have conferences there, because it's not one within 150 miles of us, so there's a need for that. But we're at campgrounds, and we're doing different things. We have glamping ponds also, which looks like an upside, upside down boat to people in Europe. And a lot of the camp, camping facilities that people stay in in Europe are actually glamping ponds, because the original builders of these were boat builders. So a glamping pond is an upside down boat. It just doesn't float. Okay. Well, listen, thank you for that lesson. I'm excited about this uh, 30-foot yurt and the classes and conferences that you're going to be hosting. And You know, you're 75, but you got a vision that God has given you. And I just want to let you know I'm proud of you, and I thank you, man. Well, we're still trying. It's good. And uh, we'll get it together, despite all the obstacles we have in because there's small-minded people everywhere you go, and you can't let them stop what your dream is. Always remember your dream out there and do it. 
if your dream is, is far enough visionary, there will be people who will try to stop it. But that doesn't mean you let them do that. Just keep on persevering and it'll work out. I think that's the word to close out, people. Keep pushing, keep persevering, it will work out. Adios, muchachos. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs>